The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Balancing relaxation and alertness. Settling in. The invitation is to soften your eyes. They're not already closed, and it feels comfortable to do so closing them. And tuning in to however this body is, this heart and mind are today, this moment. Inviting awareness to be at the forefront of attention. And perhaps generating or recalling whatever aspiration brings you here, brings you to the practice, brings you to the practice this morning. Noticing the feeling of that in your heart, in your body. Perhaps drawing nourishment from it. And then letting that go when it feels right. Staying with that feeling, if it's a nourishing feeling. And noticing any effect that just that little moment has had on the practice. That recollection of aspiration. Inviting the body to relax. Me, this body, relax. And if it's helpful, sweeping through the head and face Neck and shoulders. Mm-hmm. Inviting a settling. Inviting softening in the chest, upper back, torso, and middle back. And resting, resting in your seat or your spot. Feeling the support beneath you, the grounding. Allowing the arms and legs to rest 
and stillness. And feeling the contact of the hands. Whatever they're touching. The contact of the feet. Grounded. Allowing awareness to suffuse more deeply through this whole body, body as a whole, all of the senses, skin, the integrity of the posture. And allowing awareness to suffuse, pervade, and fill the heart and mind. Taking in whatever is there. Allowing, receiving experience. Maybe asking, what is the quality of awareness in this moment right now? It's helpful to anchor on a particular experience of the body or breath to start. Please feel free to do so. And either now or when it feels right, the invitation over the next 20, 25 minutes is to open up to the flow of experience, arising and passing away. Time to time, refreshing awareness, the light touch. Am I aware?
time to time checking in. Are you aware? It's obvious. That's the relationship to what is arising.
thank you for the sincerity of your practice. Before we transition to the Dharma talk, the invitation is to just take a moment and silently send a pulse of kindness, goodwill, metta, to your co-practitioners in the Zoom room and maybe people who are often here who aren't here today or other practitioners in your life. Sending that sense of goodwill to the little tiles, whether they be video or icons or photos. And as you do, knowing that you're receiving that goodwill. Today I'd like to talk about wise relationship to aspiration, mostly in our practice, but also in our lives, where what we're practicing for, in a way. And to start off, just invite a visualization. You're welcome to keep your eyes open or close them. Uh, to imagine that you're in a boat, be a sailboat, out on the calm sea at night. And just like in ancient times, this boat is being steered, guided by the stars, in particular the North Star, the compass point. From time to time, a captain, whether that be you or someone else, is looking up, looking high for the direction of where the boat is headed. And from time to time, of course, looking down ahead, verifying that there are no obstacles or swells in the waves. Staying attuned to what is happening on the boat. Feeling that sense of sure but gentle motion. Charting. Flowing through the sea. With that is the visualization, very simple this morning. We'll speak about the role of the North Star, the aspiration in our practice. Aspirations, of course, can take many forms. They can be New Year's resolutions, for example. But in, in practice, more often, 
there's a lot of aspiration or aspirational language in the Buddha's teachings. There is um, talk of the paramis or the perfections that Marjolaine and I and others talked about over the past couple of months. These culmination of beautiful qualities of the heart and mind. There's the aspirations of the Brahma Viharas, the beautiful heart qualities. And of course, the most important, the biggest aspiration in Buddhist practice, freedom, liberation itself. So it's clear from the teachings and probably from your own experience, certainly from mine, that aspirations can be really helpful. They can bring up energy, they can be inspiring. And this talk is going to cover a little bit of that, name some key aspirations or unpack the ones that I named just a little bit. And talk about ways to relate to aspirations in practice. To sort of increase the way that they can support us, inspire us, and to name the pitfalls. And hopefully by naming them, exploring them, reduce any potential pitfalls of practicing using aspiration. I'll talk about this over the arc of our practice and a little bit touch on in the moment, moment to moment. And while I'll be talking mostly about formal meditation practice, as you all know, all of this applies to daily life too. So that's where we're going. So as I mentioned, the core aspiration of Buddhist practice is freedom, liberation. Freedom from what, though, right? There are different ways this is talked about in the early Buddhist teachings, but the most consistent message the Buddha gave was freedom, enduring freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion. It's also a freedom, too. And this is core to Buddhist practice, too, a freedom to relate to whatever is coming up in experience, to life itself, in a way that is healthy, wholesome, nourishing, free, not stuck. Reduction of dukkha, suffering. So the aspiration for freedom, aspiration for insight is one sort of subset of this. And this could be um, the growth of wisdom itself in all its various forms. Or it could be formal insights, the insight into anicca, impermanence, anatta, selflessness, or not self. And of course, into the nature of dukkha, dis-ease, suffering. These kinds of doorways into deep understanding of the way that experiential reality happens for us that can bring up joy, equanimity, freedom. What a term that um, Tanisra Bhikkhu translates as renunciation joy, the joy of clear seeing, of not being stuck to reality, is how I think of it. Not having too much of um, a fixed agenda or a fixed view 
about what needs to happen. I spoke about renunciation joy in sort of more detail and more details about practicing with it back in October. I think it might have been October 18th. So I can unpack that a little bit more if you didn't hear that talk and listen later. But meanwhile, I also want to talk about other direct experiences of beautiful aspirational states. The paramis, which are including mindfulness itself, renunciation itself, wisdom, and also overlap with the Brahma Viharas or the immeasurable qualities of metta, loving kindness and goodwill, compassion, joy itself, empathetic altruistic joy for others' well-being, and equanimity, joy of non-clinging. So when they arise, Even the tiniest glimpses of these can nourish your whole day or maybe a long period of practice. It can fuel, inspire whatever is best in us on the cushion and off. And this is much truer if I don't identify with them, if they're not about sort of making a project of me or making a project of causing them to happen again. Identification is one way that these qualities can be obstacles, obstacles as well as or instead of nourishment for the practice. So this kind of gets us towards the pitfalls of aspiration or of recreating experience. So how many of you have experienced a great sit or a great mind or heart state or even a great breath and just like longed for its return, really wanted it back? How does that work for you? I can speak for me. It does not work very well. It's a recipe for dissatisfaction, dukkha. Yeah, irritation, even sometimes like a sense of failure or identification, whatnot. I have a story about this, actually. So early in my practice, I ended up going to Asia for a long period of time, many months. And um, towards the end, I landed up in a monastery kind of by accident. I ended up in this monastery. Um, It was gorgeous place. It was on this giant limestone karst on this teeny little island in the Bay of Thailand. And I spent the period of time between Christmas and New Year's Day there. So about seven days. And boy, my, my practice was just unfolding really beautifully. I'd been alternating between volunteering, pilgrimage, retreat, and just general travel for months, and was also super motivated. So there are all these beneficial conditions. The motivation was happening from not knowing if a cancer biopsy done um, Christmas Eve day was going to come back positive or negative. So the mind was just focused. Like, All right. This moment, this practice, what is going to unfold? And in this beautiful place, in these very austere conditions, insight arose. And at that point in my practice, it was the clearest, deepest kind of 
shift of consciousness I'd ever experienced in my life. And it was beautiful. And it really, really inspired the practice. And, oh, for the first number of months, I just experienced it. It's kind of like an act of grace or a gift from the universe, a gift of the practice. And didn't think a lot about it, just kind of lived with the results. And then I was exposed to more kinds of skill-oriented teachings, if you will, in um, American Vipassana. And I can't blame it on the teachers, but the way my mind interpreted it was to go back and try to recreate this experience based on techniques. And let me tell you, it didn't work. (laughs) It didn't work at all. And um, that identification itself became a real obstacle to maturing my practice for quite some time, a humbling amount of time. So the aspiration to recreate, the aspiration to get somewhere or get back somewhere, not so useful often. Definitely not when held as a project that I can do, make happen in a certain way. Some really, um, I'm not the only one. Many practitioners find the way we relate to insight, whether wanting it or having had it or wanting it back, can be a problematic obstacle to spiritual maturity, actual true spiritual maturity. The desire to return to any particular state in dukkha, identifying with a particular experience or outcome, can also be dukkha. Even wanting to fulfill an aspiration in a certain way, that it has to look a certain way, can be a recipe for dukkha, the second arrow. So. There's that piece. And now there's another piece I'm going to talk about, which is how aspirations in the practice are framed, how they're understood. So one beautiful way of framing them is as um, naturally emerging byproducts of meditative practice itself, spiritual practice itself. And that can be really beautiful. That itself can sometimes lead people, I don't know exactly how to say this, but not to be inspired enough, even perhaps. It depends on the personality type and the phase of practice. But ignoring the possibility of aspiration, ignoring the North Star can also lead us to just kind of drift around in the ocean for a long time for certain personality types or or whatnot. On the other hand, framing the process of awakening as a series of attainments, and I'm using air quotes here for a reason, attainments, that can be a pitfall too. The concept of attainment sort of reifies something, it concretizes, it makes it into a thing, right? 
And while that can inspire a lot of energy and practice and can be really beautiful for a while, I'm not saying never to use them as an idea, it can also lead to the strong tendency for a problematic view of or focus on the self. As I'm the one doing this in a way that builds me up or tears me down if it doesn't get done, right? So overly identifying with practice, overly identifying with aspiration, attainment needs to look a certain way. That can condition huffing and puffing, striving, working too hard, right? And it can also condition shame. Shame about sort of the natural process of being human and of refining spiritual life, refining the heart, refining the mind. That tends to happen through a combination of these beautiful states, the paramis or metta, passion or equanimity, and having them as reference points for these really just sort of coming standard installed as human beings, things like greed, hatred, delusion, selfishness, pettiness, distraction, whatnot. Like name every hindrance you've ever thought of. They all come standard with the package, right? It's it's not something to be down on ourselves about when it starts to get seen. Joseph Goldstein has this quote that self-knowledge is rarely good news, right? And I agree with that. And at the same time, seeing the unsavory bits is great news. It's great news because you're seeing it. (laughs) If I'm not seeing it, I'm being led around by it. I'm controlled by it. Seeing is a sense of disidentification from it. And the beautiful thing about the cultivation of sati, of lucid awareness, mindfulness, is that eventually it self-corrects because all of you have seen this in one way or another. We start to see over time these unhelpful results of ill will, for example. I just got home from a retreat a day and a half ago. And one of the things that really came up for me on the retreat was just how painful it was to have ill will towards another person. It's not even like it's bad or shameful or wrong. It just didn't feel good. Pure and simple. And the results in the mind were not good results. So the mind just dropped it. It's that kind of process that with all the bits of unwholesomeness or unsavoriness or greed, hatred, delusion, and all of their henchmen or playground buddies, all of them have these unhelpful results. And if we tune into those, they naturally drop away over time. It's a self-correcting process. On the other hand, not being able to tolerate seeing them and 
this is something that grows over time with mindfulness, with wisdom, right? This ability to see them without having guilt, shame, a feeling of um, sort of the negative form of conceit of being less than. If we're able to see them, not make excuses for them, have remorse perhaps for an action, right? Or even remorse for um, an experience. Remorse is about the action, right? Guilt, shame are about us. Remorse is helpful. Shame, not usually. And I'm saying all this, I'm spending a couple of moments on it because lack of tolerance for seeing this can lead to repression and spiritual bypassing. So it relates to aspiration because if, for example, I did a lot of metta practice, I did a lot of metta practice in Burma, and I came back and I could watch when anything that wasn't metta came up. And this is a great practice, right? To watch anything that's not whatever the aspiration is or whatever's wholesome in the mind flitting through. However, it's very easy. It's a tiny, tiny step from that to if there's a reaction, squishing it down, repressing it, locking it away, cordoning it off. And that's human too, and it's correctable too. But it can lead to spiritual bypassing, and that slows down the spiritual maturity process. Or it can be really annoying to the other people in your life. Really annoying, right? Like, if I'm unable to see that I am, I'm just picking a random example here, overbearing in conversation, what is the impact on my relationships? Not great. However, if I hold it lightly and can catch myself in the act and go, gosh, I'm being overbearing, and just even name it with a laugh, that builds intimacy, right? Or whatever it is, you know, pick your, pick your flavor of um, obnoxious human habit, right? <laughs> so to hold it lightly, our choices matter a lot. They matter a lot. And to notice that it doesn't make sense to push away, to squish that which we don't like about ourselves. And it doesn't make sense to buy into it or feel totally crappy about it either. It's, can the process self-correct? Can I hold it lightly? And this is a process and it takes time. And most of us start in a self-blame realm or a justification realm and gradually soften into broader and broader and broader acceptance of our own foibles. And that leads to broader and broader acceptance of others' foibles to understanding, compassion. Another thing about relating to aspiration, without seeing all of the not-so-great stuff, is it can lead to taking a little bit too much credit for how practice unfolds. 
So yes, it's, it's great to feel good about like, okay, I sat five days out of seven this week, or I sat every morning or, you know, and to notice and appreciate, really appreciate and soak in our wholesome actions and wholesome qualities that arise in our hearts and minds. Appreciating them helps them increase. So I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing that. But at the most mature levels of practice, it's possible to kind of get a big head or to get puffed up about some of the more beautiful things that unfold. And that doesn't help either. This path has been around for more than 2,600 years, and a lot of these beautiful qualities are laid out in great detail in the various texts that hold the Buddha's teachings through the millennia. And it's a beautiful thing to recognize one's own goodness and the maturity of the practice and have this healthy respect for yourself in whatever has unfolded while balancing that with a healthy humility that, wow, these are the conditions that form the path of practice. They're not personal to me or to you or to anyone. We do these things. Eventually, these things, this practice does us and unfolds through us. And that's really beautiful, too. But to hold aspiration as something in practice that only I do, that misses some of the point. It's kind of like, um, it's really healthy to aspire to something. Let's just say, um, aspire to get healthier, to not drink, to lose weight, like whatever, pick your typical New Year's resolution, right? It's great to feel good about progress we make on that that's really healthy it's great and to recognize that there are all these conditions in our lives both supporting and countervailing forces that can support us or make it a lot harder you know someone with a genetic history of addiction is going to have a much harder time with dry january than someone who doesn't just that those are the conditions So it's a little bit like unpacking privilege, actually, white privilege or other kinds of privilege, that um, overly focusing on my role and fulfilling an aspiration ignores all of the beneficial tailwinds that I'm getting. Or overly focusing on my lack of ability to achieve a certain thing might be ignoring the big systemic headwinds so that support over the arc of practice of aspiration again it's like that north star we um we need the aspiration the bigger picture looking high gazing high. And it's really helpful to notice if the winds have changed direction, 
if the conditions of the sea have gotten not so great, there's an obstacle, a rock. Those are maybe the external conditions, right? And it's really helpful to notice the internal conditions. Thich Nhat Hanh has this great uh, simile that he used when he was alive. Um, it was about, well, it was an actual story, but it was also a simile. He talked about how refugees would be on a boat escaping the war-torn region where he was. And if one person on the boat stayed calm, they would make it to safety. But if everybody lost it, they were doomed. Right? So that's a truism relationally. And it's also true of our internal collection of forces. The one calm person in the boat inside, that could be mindfulness, right? Sati, awareness. So it's helpful to notice if the denizens, the occupants of the boat, are freaking out a little bit. If my greed or my anger or my desire is sort of kicking up, because that can throw me off course. It isn't necessarily helpful to helpful to get more involved in internal conflict about it, but to see it and acknowledge it, to stay calm, to stay aware. So love of inspiration from aspiration or ideals is a really healthy reference point and kind of ballast in the moment when it's balanced with this mindfulness, this humility. And um, can really offer powerful motivation to the companies. say that a really helpful approach for me has been to hold any expectations lightly, lightly. There's this beautiful quote from the current Dalai Lama. He suggested different timeframes in in different versions of this I've, I've heard or seen, but he says to it's really helpful to look back at one's practice, or we could say one's progress and aspiration regularly, every five to seven years. Not too often. And, yeah, we can also assess a little bit, you know, maybe at the end of a sit, the end of a day or a week or a year. But again, lately, Lightly, small. So, I'll talk more about this next time I'm here. But um, overall, I just want to really encourage you to find a way to draw nourishment from whatever aspirations you have, whatever they are. And to... um, Practice the alternative to over-identification, which is to notice all of these different conditions, internally and externally, with a healthy respect. 
The path unfolds through conditions, conditions, conditions. And that doesn't mean we don't have any control. We've used the analogy before here of uh, a kayaker in whitewater. She doesn't have control over the shape of the rapids that day, how much water is in the river. She doesn't have control over the flow of the river itself or its depth. But she can navigate the conditions that are there wisely. So there's this much, maybe, but that's everything. Nudging the conditions that we can control, steering that boat, whether it's a kayak or a seashell. So next time, two weeks from now, I'll talk a little bit more about how this overall aspiration relates to the little impulses in the moment that we have, because those can help or hinder staying with aspiration, staying with our goals, whatever they are, practice or in daily life or a combination of the two. But for now, just want to invite you to get nourished from your aspirations. Thank you. So friends, we have about 10 minutes. If you have any general Q&A, any general questions, comments, points of confusion or contention, and it can be about the talk or it can be more generally about your practice or is open. You can also put questions in the chat if it's easier. If you don't have a question for me, I have a question for you which is what is one aspiration you have for your practice in this coming year? It's helpful to name it. Anybody? Yes, Twee. And then Carrie. I I think what I when you were when when you were giving the talk I was reminded of what um the very helpful advice I got from Ajahn Amaro and he said that do not practice um with the idea of me doing something because when you think that I have to do it, um, it's, 
it's really it's, it's, it's reinforcing a wrong view. And uh, he said, instead, let awareness inform you. Um, let awareness and wisdom guide you, uh, guide the practice. And I found it very helpful because I found that every time I feel like I need to correct something, uh, I feel a lot of tension. Well, so in, in that moment, I remember what he said and I just say, okay, I'm just going to sit here and wait and wait for awareness to come and guide me. And it is so much easier that way. And it makes the practice much more enjoyable. So, yeah. Thank you. Beautiful tweet. Thank you for passing along Ajahn Amaro's wisdom. Harry, did you still want to share something or no? Yes, um, it's in the same vein, in a way, when you say that you're waiting for something, sometimes with um, being uh, judgmental of my practice or of um, some of the normal tendencies that come up, that second arrow um, that is so um, automatic in um, judging can you say more about that second arrow or that judgment? I'm, I hear the comment, but I'm, I'm trying to tease out if there's a, a question there. Um, there is in terms of being more accepting and, um, and just being with some of that that comes up. And I find that I struggle with, you know, when you said, you know, be calm, you know, just sit, just be, all of that. Sometimes that second arrow comes up with criticism towards um, not just being. And just my question is uh, maybe a way of sitting with that. No, it's, a, it's a great question, Carrie. Thank you for the question. Okay. So um, that I think that's the kind of spirit sort of addressing that was where the Joseph, Joseph Goldstein had this, this clip that self-knowledge is really good news, right? It's so common for each of us to see things we don't like or experience things we don't like. Judgment about our practice is a really common one. I'll say the first piece is that it tends to be something that softens over time as the practice develops. And yes, there are absolutely things that can be done to help soften it in the moment. The first is when the judgment comes up, to notice the tone of voice in the mind, to notice the attitude of the mind that is conferring the judgment. There's usually a sense of hostility or frustration or anger, and underneath that, what's there? One really helpful piece of advice Andrea Fella gave, I think it was on the experienced students retreat to a group of us, was that um, a kind of judgment or self-ill will even that can be embedded in it, in the harshness, it's a misunderstanding of a part of the mind that's actually really trying to help us. It's really trying to help us. And to kind of look underneath that harshness and experience the, um, the attitude of the wanting to help 
can soften because often if there's a judgment, then there's a, I shouldn't be having this judgment or a resistance of the judgment or a collapse from the judgment, but instead to recognize, oh, this is just a misunderstanding. This judgmental mind is trying to help me and it's just not helping me very well. And that can bring in a sense of kindness or compassion for the whole heart, the whole mind. And it's that kindness and compassion that ends up softening the judgment and dissolving it into discernment. So does that address your question, Carrie? Yes, it does. Thank you very much. Keep with it. Keep with it. Thank you. So I'm going to stop the recording to honor time, but I will stay around for a little bit more Q&A. There's one in the chat, and I think I saw another hand. Um, But meanwhile, I just want to wish all of you the best in your practice and to um, briefly dedicate the merit before I turn off the recording. So may our practice be of benefit to ourselves and our lives and all of the lives we touch, and all of the lives they touch. May all beings be happy, be healthy, be peaceful, and be free. Thank you.